Hello and welcome to another episode of the Northern Agenda podcast, bringing you politics news about the North and from the North. I'm Rob Parsons, Northern Agenda editor for Reach, which publishes the Manchester Evening News and Newcastle Chronicle. I do a daily newsletter with news and analysis of politics in the North, and you can find it at www.thenorthernagenda.co.uk. There's been a lot going on in the past seven days in Northern politics, quite a lot of it centred around motorists. On Merseyside, an investigation by the Liverpool Echo revealed that a host of city councillors have had parking tickets thrown out by the council in years gone by using what's described as backdoor routes, something I'd imagine you'd find pretty galling if you've had a parking ticket in Liverpool recently. And in Manchester, in residential areas, the car will no longer be king. The city council says it wants to introduce 20 miles an hour speed limits as a default in built up areas to help reduce pollution and make it easier to walk and cycle. Will other areas follow suit? I guess we'll have to wait and see. Later on in this episode, we'll hear from Kim Ledbeater, the Labour MP for Batley and Spen in West Yorkshire, who's hosting a conference dedicated to tackling the North's huge skill shortages. But I thought I'd this week I'd chew over some of the other big politics stories in the North with someone who's probably covered every inch of rail and road in our great region over the years, Henry Murison from the Northern Powerhouse Partnership described as a leading voice of business and civic leaders across the North. Henry, welcome. Lovely to join you, Rob. It's great to be back. Thank you. It's lovely to have you on. And aside from the stories that I've mentioned, there's been a few interesting talking points this week in terms of Westminster politics, I guess, and what it means for the North. I mean, I thought I'd start with the first one, which is, do we need a minister for the North? Now, cast your mind back to last summer, and Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, both vying to be Prime Minister or Conservative Party leader, signed up to the so-called Northern Agenda pledges put forward by Jake Berry, one of which was a Minister for the North. Another was that there would be two vocational colleges in the North that would be the equivalent of Oxford and Cambridge. Now, there's been a, a reshuffle this week, new departments created, but that has reminded people that contrary to what the Prime Minister promised, that there is no Minister for the North that we can we can discern. I, mean, I guess people would have a different views about the merits of whether you need a minister for the North. But I think I don't know. People might say that it kind of speaks volumes about the sort of uh, where leveling up comes in the in the pecking order of priorities that Rishi Sunak promised a few months ago that he would deliver this, and a few months later now doesn't feel compelled. To deliver it. I mean, is that is that how you see it? It's a sort of sign that levelling up is of not so great importance to Rishi Sunak as, as perhaps it was to his predecessor? I think, I mean, you have to compare, don't you, to answer that question, which predecessor do you have in mind? So, like, well, I mean, Boris, Boris, Boris Johnson, as the person who, you know, brought levelling up yeah. uh, the phrase into, into wider use. And, and let's remember, Liz made the same promise, uh, God bless her soul, but um, it was very unclear whether the then levelling up secretary, uh, Simon Clark, was the Minister for the North or not. Jay Berry, when he was party chair, I think I remember saying on Peston that he was, and then it was sort of never really confirmed. And so I, I think my reflection would be that, of course, levelling up was a thing under Boris Johnson, but once there was always a Minister for the North, there was Jake Berry when he was uh, in the Cabinet, and then when he left government, uh, Grant Shapps was... Uh, had that title and I mean you may remember Rob I know you were a great reader of his of his blocks so I think that 
there is some benefit to having someone around the cabinet table who has that responsibility, but it is a second order issue compared to whether or not there are significant amounts of money being spent on closing the North-South divide. And so, and particularly whether or not that money is being controlled from the North of England and by our mayors and, and wider leaders, or whether it's being com- controlled by Whitehall officials. So I would always say the kind of the problem with the kind of boosterist levelling up of Boris Johnson was there was a lot of talk, but not a lot of action. Um, and if Rishi Sunak was serious about uh, making devolution more meaningful, about devolving a lot more powers, as I think the Chancellor and Michael Gove is, I'm not sure it really matters whether there's a minister for the North or not. It, it only starts to matter if, um, in, in the absence of doing those things seriously, you're trying to kind of pull together a, a sort of a, at least a movement across government that can make it look like existing departments are doing more. Um, and I would I would reflect that Michael Gove seems to be the person who's really doing the job of championing the North of England's interests, and so. I, I come to the view that we probably should just get behind Michael, those of us that want to get progress from the current government, rather than worry too much about the fact that there isn't a Northern around the table who's trying to do that job. And, and actually, as we as I alluded to under the Boris Johnson years, it was uh, one of the MPs from from uh, from the south of England. I mean, an MP in in uh, in Hertfordshire who was doing that. So it maybe isn't really that important, but. In a world where we've had kind of botched levelling up announcements, lots of the things that the government have got wrong, I think it, it piles on the pressure. Uh, and for the Northern Research Group, when when the only kind of kind of red wall meet was a was an MP from the East Midlands who who wants to restore the death penalty, the challenge is that there are there are tokenistic jobs in government for some from the red wall, but probably not the right people, and certainly not the people who um, are going to speak up for the NRG's policy interests and be able to get some serious work done. Yeah, I, mean, I suppose if if a government minister was here now, I imagine they would say that yeah, you know, having a minister for the north isn't that important, really, as you as you've said, and that really that you know they would they would say that leveling up is sort of baked into all the government thinking, and that you know all the part all the departments are working on leveling up, and you know Department for Education or whoever they all have that, and it doesn't need like you know the the having a a minister who sits around the table is 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 a symbolic gesture but i guess it doesn't mean that much and i think you're right that um you know it is more important really if the north is going to rejuvenate itself and take control of its own destiny that people like andy burnham and tracy Braben and steve rotherham and oliver coppard and ben houchin get more powers to do things for themselves rather than having to have someone hopefully fighting their corner uh, around around the cabinet table. I think that's right. And I think, I mean, as much as it might make my life easier, having a minister for the Northern Powerhouse was always very handy because uh, it meant there was one person you could ring up who'd sort out your various problems with government. I think, um, as a, as the Convention of the North indicated, uh, Michael Gove definitely sees himself as the kind of the North's first port of call in government. Um, and I think certainly the current Chancellor as well talking about single budgets for mayors coming out of the budget. I mean, at least for, for the Greater Manchester and West Midlands mayors, that's that's the most supportive Chancellor of levelling up or whatever we're supposed to call it these days since George Osborne was Chancellor. So if, if we're in the business of serious devolution and trying to rebalance the country's economy, having a Chancellor who's on your side is a very important instrument. 
And it does feel like whether it be his comments on HS2, which put these crazy ideas of not going to Euston back in the cereal box they came from, or um, really getting serious about fiscal devolution, a, a Chancellor who is absolutely out to help us, regardless of how interested the Prime Minister may be and how distracted he may be by his own his own poll ratings or whatever else is troubling him at the moment. Um, I think that's probably what we really need. But I can understand the, the Northern Research Group feel like they asked for something, they were promised it, they weren't delivered what they were what they asked for. They, they've got a legitimate right to, to challenge that. But the devolution journey is much more important than getting central government to be a bit more favourable to the North. And permanent transfers of power, as Gordon Brown also argued for, um, along with transfers of funding decisions, that, that is the fundamental way to get stuff done, not the government being slightly less unhelpful. Because as we proved, things like opportunity areas that have been abolished, do mean central government has taken really good ideas that were working for the north of England and just got rid of them at a moment's notice. So I, I think winning a battle for a policy in Whitehall is often a, a bit of a pyrrhic thing because it might not last. You don't really have any certainty that you won't just get kind of ditched after the next reshuffle. Is it really worth anything to get anything through a, a central government policy process? Unless it's permanent rewiring of the way that the country works, I'm becoming less and less interested, if I'm honest, because initiatives come and go, devolutions here forever. Well, with that with that in mind, I'm, I'm interested to know what you make of... Uh, there's a great scoop in the Financial Times this week by uh, Jen Williams and others who revealed that the levelling up department, Michael Gove's levelling up department, um, has apparently been banned from making spending decisions on new capital projects without specific permission from the Treasury. And this apparently comes after concerns were raised uh, about uh, the levelling up department's ability to deliver value for money. And we we hear it goes back to Michael Gove Gove gave a a big speech at the Convention of the North in Manchester, where he said that £30 million is going to be spent on improving housing in, uh, I think, Greater Manchester and the West Midlands. And and for what we read, it was this announcement that has sounded the Sounded the bugles in, uh, in 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 the treasury, and they have now said to Michael Gove's department, "You you can't spend any money on capital projects unless we give you the the say so." And it was discussed in the the Commons today as we're recording this podcast. And Lisa Nandy said, Lisa Nandy obviously being a Michael Gove's shadow, Labour shadow. If this report is true, we're in the absurd position of having a Secretary of State for Leveling Up who doesn't even have the authority to sign off on a park bench. I mean, it's a bit, uh, I get, I, I'm wondering what local leaders who have been bidding to the levelling up department for 20 million here or 15 million pounds there for regeneration projects are going to make of the fact that the department they're bidding to itself has can't do anything unless Jeremy Hunt's treasury says so. I mean, it's a crazily, it's a crazy system, isn't it? It, it reflects, doesn't it? a country that's just not wired to do this stuff well. And I, I think, I mean, the bit of the levelling up department that I have a problem with is the kind of the bidding functions. And this week I've kind of been on a bit of a rampage uh, against kind of centralised bidding rounds because they're so wasteful. Uh, the levelling up one cost £27 million, some of it local money, some of it national government capacity funding. And decisions were made before the, even the announcements came that certain places that had bid were sort of ineligible by default because they'd won in the previous round, but no one had bothered to tell them in advance that they need not apply again in the second round. So I think 
the the whole kind of bidding panoply is just a bit of a nightmare. And the town's fund, I mean, a lot of those bids looked very, very politically motivated. <laughs> and so I'm not sure the Treasury's wrong, <laughs> that maybe all these pots of money are maybe not a great idea. Um, and that the way they're being given out doesn't necessarily stack up. The alternative, of course, is much more radical, which is to devolve all the funding in the first place. And I've been really clear, levelling up fund round three, I mean, they haven't announced the details yet. When it comes to the mayors, we know pretty much, we've worked out uh, and, and shared that analysis with with Peston exclusively shortly after this had all happened, that actually you can see big chunks of money that should have gone to places like Bradford's, some of the most deprived councils in the country, uh, and they hadn't got them, whereas very prosperous areas have got 100% of their potential allocations, you mean the full 20 million per constituency. So um, I'm I'm really sort of of the view now that we should just give that money straight to, to Metro mayors. I know uh, whenever I raise this that on, on social media, kind of council leaders, council chief execs always pile in and say, yeah, I mean, this is just a complete waste of our time and energies. So I, I think that by handing out money in such small chunks, you end up getting worse results. Actually, as we've proved, doing gain share deals with big northern cities and, and now often more rural areas like York and North Yorkshire is the right way to distribute money. It means it's spent much more effectively. Um, some of the projects that were funded by levelling up front round two, I'm sure, will be brilliant, but many of them may not actually deliver much benefit. And so this is this is the fundamental challenge that by the, the smaller the chunks you give, the more likely it is that it'll get eaten up by overspends and consultants and the costs of delivery and that the actual benefits will be pretty minimal. And, and that is what we've got to change. So I, I think that the the answer in the end is that I don't think the levelling up department should be giving out chunks of money to anybody, really. The money should be going straight to those places that need it. And it's up to our metro mayors to spend it. And then maybe the treasury might get a bit more confidence that it's being spent properly. Now, one of the areas that I think uh, Metro mayors would like to perhaps have a bit more control over, although they do have some control over it already, is the the state of our railways. Uh, It's a a constant bone of contention, Transpennine Express, Avanti West Coast, never far from the headlines. And uh, you were a big um, speech this week, weren't you, by Transport Secretary Mark Harper, where he's unveiled his vision for how the railways are going to operate in the future. It doesn't sound like it was too long ago that Grant Shapps was unveiling his vision for how the railways would operate. So what, what's what's different this time? What did what did you make of the speech? I mean it's broadly the same as what as what Grant Shapps came off came out with. And in a classic we've talked a lot about Grant today, haven't we? But in classic Shapsism, uh, the great survivor of this week's uh, mini reshuffle and deck chair uh, moving on the Titanic of government departments. Um, he took the Williams Review and renamed it the Shaps Williams Review, which is is classic classic Grand Shaps, if you ask me. For for those who were a, an admirer of his uh, of his sheer tenacity, if nothing else, um, and I think my sort of reflection really on it was the the long term purpose of saying that the Department of Transport decides too many things. Mark Harper used the example of having to give permission to to change a passenger train so a freight train could run. Him having to sign literally sign that off in and agree to every detail is just insanity. Um, the idea that the the kind of the England will broken down into a number of regions and, and the decisions will be made in that way to, to get things done quicker and, and more flexibly makes perfect sense. 
Uh, obviously, there was a lot of emphasis that there'll still be a role for the private sector at the moment. Obviously, as we know, uh, those like TransPennine can't do anything without permission from the Secretary of State. So things like the negotiation with ASLEF over rest day working, in reality, that negotiation is actually driven by the, the rail minister. I mean, and, and the initial offer that was given uh, to ASLEF was signed off by the rail minister. It wasn't TransPennine's offer. Um, it wasn't, they couldn't offer that on their own terms. So I, I think it's absolutely right that we get the government more out of the detail of running the railways that where we do have private companies, they're actually making a degree of their own decisions rather than just doing the government's bidding. Um, the thing that did disappoint me, not enough on devolution. Do you mean, so Greater Manchester is in the queue along with the West Midlands, uh, the the great uh, sort of pathfinders of devolution, these uh, sort of uh, the Praetorian Guard, I suppose we should refer to them as, of, of, of Devo dealers. Um, and they will hopefully get arrangements that let them to do allow them to ticketing, allow them to take more control over agreeing some of the detail of exactly where trains serve and, and certainly integrating them better with other modes like like the tram and, and the newly publicly controlled bus network in Greater Manchester. So that, that's really positive, but it's not a bottom-up vision for making the railway work for local economies. And the whole point is that the railway, Mark Harper kept reminding us, it only makes up 2% of every journey, but it is an enabler of economic change and growth. And so actually we should be using, like Steve Rotherham does with Mersey Rail, we should be using our suburban rail networks in particular as tools for driving economic change. Um, and I think there is a lot more we could do if if our mayors had more control over those systems to, to get things working better. And that doesn't mean, again, mayors getting involved in the micro detail, but it means them giving a really clear steer over what their priorities are and ensuring that we maximise the revenue that can be generated by getting people on the services that already run and making sure that those are the right services. So I think there's a big opportunity. And what was really positive was Andrew Haynes, who's the kind of, and uh, I don't think he's, he's to be referred to as the fat controller. He's certainly not not overweight, so it would be an unfair description. Uh, but he was leading as well as Network Rail, the, the transition team, the Great British Railways transition team. I think he's doing a fantastic job and was really clear one of his big takeaways of what he was be focusing on was devolution. So as much as I'm sure uh, DFT civil servants were keen to scrub any references uh, to devolution from the Secretary of State speech. Luckily, one did survive. Uh, Andrew Haynes was much more direct in his analysis that it was a key part of doing things differently. And his reflection was, in the kind of Q&A, that the rest of government is moving in the direction of devolving things. So why on earth would the railway be any different? And that does feel like, for all the, the kind of bluster about whether levelling ups are up or down and, and these kind of crazy funding competitions that... Uh, don't seem to make any sense and, and just give people back money they've already lost in many cases. Um, actually, real transfers of power and authority, genuine fiscal devolution, along with some serious levers over things like railways as well as buses that are key to improving productivity. This does start to feel like a genuinely serious attempt to get the country to grow again, because there's no way to deal with the UK's wider productivity problem unless you address regional productivity. And uh, it feels like the Chancellor and Michael Gover on that agenda. But what we also need is the Prime Minister and the rest of the Cabinet to get with that programme uh, and start genuinely pulling together on something they could actually get done in the next 18 months, because there's very little else, I think, that they could do to really get underneath the skin of the, the real problems in the north of England. And another initiative or two is not going to cut it, Rob. Absolutely. Well, I hope they're 
hope they're listening to this, heeding heeding those wise words. More devolution. Who who misses the Northern Agenda podcasts? No, no, no one does. All the big hitters are listening to this, which is why uh, I hope they uh, hope they take it on board. Um, Henry Mewison, thank you so much uh, for for, the, for those insights. And uh, now let's have a listen to our guest this week. We cannot grow our economy, support businesses to thrive or level up the country if our workforce does not have the right skills when and where they are needed. Those were the words of Vishy Sunak this week, at least according to a Downing Street press release, as he assembled his new look cabinet. Many UK universities might be world class, uh, but the government says that the UK is lagging behind in how it equips our young people for the jobs that will get the North's economy moving. Getting more people into high quality skills training is in the government's levelling up white paper and progress can't come soon enough as the gap in productivity, which means the amount of value generated by the average worker every hour, is widening between the North and the South East. But what would Labour do about it if they got into government? We might get a bit of an idea uh, at the Labour Party Northern Skills Conference held in Heckmanwijk in West Yorkshire and chaired by Kim Leadbeater, the MP for Batley and Spen. It will be addressed by Lord David Blunkett, former Home Secretary, and will feature business owners, trade unions, schools, colleges, apprentices and chambers of commerce. And uh, Kim is here joining us on the podcast to talk about the conference. Welcome, Kim. Hi there, Rob. Nice to have you on. So what are you hoping to achieve with, uh, with this conference? I think the really important thing for me is to get lots of really fantastic northern um, influencers who are working within um, education, skills, training and businesses in a room together to hear Lord Blunkett's fantastic plans and ideas for what the skills um, and apprenticeships uh, piece looks like under a Labour government. He's done this fantastic report. I have it here in my hand. Uh, this is all about you know, economic recovery. It's about growth. It's about cohesion. It's about a more equal society, a more equal Britain. We know that we've got amazing people in the north of England. Um, we've just got to make sure that they're a part of the conversation in what we need when it comes to a, a workforce ready for the next um, next 50 or 100 years. And so what got you interested in this subject in the first place? I think one of the big things for me was that I used to work in further education. So I was a lecturer at two local colleges, Bradford College and Kirklees College. And I think FE is often, unfortunately, poor relation to other parts of our education sector. Um, schools, quite rightly, we talk a lot about them. Universities, we obviously talk about a lot about them as well, and quite right too, because also they've got a vital role to play in this piece of work. But I also think we need to look at the role of further education. And one of the things that used to make me most proud as an FE lecturer was it was second chance education. It was sometimes third chance education for people who, through whatever had happened in their lives, hadn't been able to succeed as they might have wanted to as at school or had maybe gone down the wrong path. Um, so it's looking at how we can give those people the opportunity that they need to thrive and be successful. But also, as someone who used to work in the private sector, looking at how we can have cross-sector working um, to get the right people with the right skills in the right jobs. So the public sector, the private sector, and indeed the voluntary sector, all working together to maximise the potential of um, individuals across the whole country, but obviously particularly here in the north. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you, uh, ahead of the, the conference this week, you released a, a, a really interesting statement just talking about your own constituency. And it said, uh, my constituency of Batley and Spen has some fantastic schools, colleges and businesses, but I hear all the time about skill shortages and the difficulty of matching our talented young people getting ready to go out into the jobs market with the vacancies available for people with the right qualifications. So 
I mean, I'm, I guess, you know, there's a lot of similarities between your patch and others in northern England. Why, why is it that there's this gap between the skills and qualifications that young people have or are coming out of colleges with and the jobs available? Is it that the, you know, the wrong courses being offered or how, 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 how have we got into this situation where the, the skills don't match, don't match the jobs? I think it's a bit of a, um, a mixed picture in that things are not very joined up. So we might have fantastic businesses, fantastic schools, fantastic colleges, but they're not always talking to each other. So I think part of that is getting those channels of communication better. Um, and that's something I'm certainly doing at a very localised level in Batley and Spen by going out and meeting different businesses every week, different schools, different FE providers and saying, oh, well, you do realise that this is happening over here or this is happening over here. And doing that joined up piece of thinking is important. But it's also looking at what the world looks like in 2023. And as much as, you know, people who are a bit older in their 40s and 50s and 60s might think we understand the needs of um what what um, the business sector looks like now, or indeed what young people are interested in doing right now, we probably don't. So we've got to make sure that young people's voices are heard as well. And that means businesses going into schools, schools, um, children going into businesses and having those really important conversations. But I also think it means revisiting what our career service looks like. Um, you know, we, we sometimes can take a very narrow approach to careers advice for young people. And, you know, if you're not going to be a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher, then there's nothing else left. And actually there's thousands of different career options and jobs um, available to people. So it's having that broader um, conversation around what careers are available. Um, and again, having that cross-sector working um, so, so that people's needs um, are being met, but equally the needs of businesses are being met. And, and by establishing that something that Laura Blunkett suggests in the report, a national skills task force, that's a good way of, of, of working. I mean, you know, sometimes we, we might not like the idea of a task force. It's like a set of superheroes are going to come in and save the day. But actually, what it means is joining up the right people to have the right conversations. So you're talking about, uh, you know, young people not necessarily knowing what's out there is that so is that what you know young people that you meet in Batley and Spen are, are saying to you they don't necessarily know the potential jobs that they that they could do no I mean I was very fortunate there was a careers fair held in Batley last weekend actually and it, it was for young girls particularly about different career options that are available to them and there were things on there that you know you might not necessarily think about whether that's working in in you know health roles or counselling roles um but also um careers that you know people from from this area might not think that are open to them whether that's going into dentistry or whether it's going into engineering or it's going into you know we don't have that broad conversation very often and I think we need to be having more of those conversations um so yeah and and also then you know the the role of technology you know we've got so many jobs now uh where you've got to have a different skill set to say when when I was growing up you know the role of technology is, is important but also the green economy and what jobs there are going to be available for people as we try and go to uh, net zero and we try and decarbonize and you know it's a different world isn't it and we've got to make sure that you know what employers need whether that's you know a factory that's going to be manufacturing electric car batteries or whatever it is that you know didn't even exist 20 30 years ago um or looking at renewable energy sources we need people to staff those jobs but young people are only going to know about those jobs if the industries are talking to them about them we were hearing from the government that skills is a big uh, focus for them. They, they, uh, you know, talk about how they've introduced T levels, which are described as a gold standard in technical qualification. I mean, how can you mentioned Lord Blunkett's report? I mean, how can Labour offer something sort of different and better than what the government is is offering? I mean, did, what I mean, I'm just interested to know what you think of what the government is currently doing, and I guess what what Labour 
might be able to do better in this in this particular area? I think we need to really shake up the curriculum. I think we've got a curriculum that was designed for probably the 1980s and we're now in 2023. So going back to some of the points I've already made, you know, technology is in a totally different place. Um, the environmental issues are in a totally different place to what they were, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. So we've got to have a curriculum that reflects that. And we've also got to have a curriculum that nurtures creativity and nurtures the skills of all young people. And I think that's what we need to do. So not just pigeonholing people into certain boxes. We don't really value, you know, things like the creative industries as much as we should. Uh, we don't really value, you know, industries like um the health and sport and leisure sectors in the way that I think we should. So I think there's a much more broader piece um, to look at when it comes to um, career opportunities for young people. And also, you know, not just going down the English math science route, even though they're really important, we need to be looking at a more holistic approach to education and also not be necessarily so exam focused. So looking at, you know, the, the other things that, that, young people can bring to society. So I'm a big fan of things like political education, financial edu education, looking at other ways of teaching children about how the world works, how the country works. And, and also, you know, jobs within those sorts of sectors, the financial services sector, for example, uh, working in public life, working in politics. You know, we don't have many of those broad conversations. So, so for me, it's about, you know, a, a different type of careers advice service, but also a different type of curriculum as well. One that embraces creativity more and doesn't just go through a very narrow lens of English, math, science and passing exams. Kim Ledbeater, Battling and Spen MP, uh, talking ahead of the Northern Labour Skills Conference. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.